The talk this evening is on the power of loving kindness. There's a quote from Rumi that I like here. Rumi, you know, is the poet laureate of Spirit Rock, so we quote him whenever possible. Someone who does not run toward the allure of love walks a road where nothing lives. This is part of our path, the allure of love. And I am so grateful that we have the practice of loving kindness within our tradition, well-established, clear instructions, easy to follow, reliable, and trustworthy. When I was in my, uh, when I was a young man in my early 20s, I had a lot of access to love, but it came and went like nobody's business. Um, I, my emotions were in a lot of flux at that time, and so I could make strong connections you know, with people, nature, music, art, but I couldn't stabilize in it. I, I didn't know how it came about or how it went away. So that actually finding the access to love became a really important motivation in my Dharma practice. And what I discovered, of course, is probably what you all know too, it needs the wisdom from Vipassana in order to make it more stable. It needs the wisdom of non-clinging to have regular access uh, to love. And then it's possible. So we have a practice within our tradition that gives us an avenue to developing this quality of love uh, in our hearts. And I'm very grateful that uh, I found it. I've done a lot of metta practice over the years, and it has changed my uh, life and my practice a lot. So I want to talk tonight about some of the great things that come out of metta practice. There's probably a really long list, but I'm going to talk about five tonight. Uh, These are the powers of metta. It makes the heart responsive, or you might say tender. It purifies the heart. That is, it cleans it up, it scrubs it. It leads to concentration. It connects us to all of life, meaning that we develop an inclusive sense of what being alive means. We allow all beings in to our hearts. And it brings happiness in a very reliable way. So I want to talk about all of these. So when we say it makes the heart tender, what we mean is that it lets us feel the joys and sorrows of life, our lives and others, uh, more readily. Things land on us with more impact because the heart is being trained to be responsive. And you can see this in the metaphrases. What we're practicing is going to different individuals and going, I hope you're happy. I hope you're well. I hope you're peaceful. I hope you're healthy. So it trains us to keep looking into the inner experience and the inner welfare and inner well-being of everyone we come in contact with. The emotions of metta will go through lots of ups and downs, but this movement of caring and interest, you could say the empathy of metta, is what of metta is what continues. This is how we're shaping the mind and this is what we learn as a practice and as a habit from doing the loving kindness. Now, not everybody who does vipassana does metta. 
nor do you have to do metta, nor should you feel guilty if you're not doing metta. If you don't want to run to the allure of love, that's your business. (laughs) And some personalities, I feel, open up to metta in a big way just through vipassana. I think about Deepama, a wonderful Indian teacher, uh, whom somebody mentioned, I think John mentioned in his talk, very deep Vipassana practitioner. I don't know that she ever did much formal loving-kindness practice, but she just had the heart qualities that when her suffering went away through Vipassana, her big heart was right there. And metta was one of the things that people felt in her most strongly. She just had a very loving attitude uh, to everyone she met. And Joseph and Sharon used to say that when they visited her in Calcutta, they would just walk into her little little house, part of an apartment, and just feel the space filled with love, which was just her way of being. But for other teachers who don't have a natural heart quality in personality, they can come out of Vipassana practice, and I'll put it this way, their metta feels a little distant. So, personally, I really gravitate to the teachers who have developed both wisdom and loving-kindness. And it has sh- those teachers have shown to me the possibility of development that is there for us as human beings. So take a look at your personality. If loving-kindness is a natural flowering through Vipassana, that might be plenty. On the other hand, if you feel, you know, a little dryness of heart, a little cerebral inclination, loving-kindness is a really wonderful supplement to the Vipassana to draw out those heart qualities. One of my teachers, was a Tibetan teacher, was giving heart advice at the end of a retreat. Tibetans have a way of doing this. You know, they kind of sum up pith instructions they want you to take with you. And he said, um, I want you to carry three things out into the world. The first, he said, is be natural. Just be yourself. Don't be pretentious. Don't put on big spiritual airs. Just be a, you know, a nice person. Be natural. The second thing he said is be wise. Go out, conduct yourself well, don't make big fusses for people, don't make mistakes in your conduct and your speech. They want to understand that good qualities come out of Buddhism, good actions come out of Buddhism. And the third thing he said is, be juicy. Because that's what will communicate to other people and let them know about your inner development. Now, juice is a technical term in Buddhism. It covers a wide range of qualities, um, love, reverence, joy, compassion, faith, kindness, humor, humility, devotion, awe. All those things are under this technical heading of juice. And it's lovely to take those qualities back and share them in the world because our world needs more juice. So these are the things that come out of our practice of metta. And I I like the perspective that Alice Walker um, enunciated when she said, as I get older, I realize the thing that I value the most is good-heartedness. If we come out of Buddhist practice with good-heartedness, that is going to communicate to the people we're in contact with. It will be meaningful to them, and it will be our contribution 
to the welfare of the world. So loving kindness is the first of the four Brahma Viharas. In our tradition, it's the foundation for the other three. So the other three are compassion, joy, and equanimity. Loving kindness is, is learning to care for the welfare of the beings that we bring to mind or come in contact with. Compassion is not so far removed. It's what loving kindness moves into when it looks on suffering. So if you're caring for someone and you notice suffering in them, the quality that comes out naturally is compassion. So compassion is connected with the suffering in the world. The third quality of appreciative joy or sympathetic joy or mudita is like the mirror image of compassion. It's beautiful how the Brahma Viharas are balanced in this way. And that is when the open heart looks upon someone who's happy, the response becomes a resonance with that happiness which makes us happy and joyful. So this is the movement of the heart in response to seeing happiness. It makes us happy to see others happy. Then equanimity is the state that's a balance of mind that supports the other three. If equanimity isn't present, the other three aren't stable. And they also move into uh, qualities that are not as wholesome. Well, we'll talk about that later. So equanimity supports the other, uh, the other three. If you go to teachings from Tibetan teachers or Zen teachers, they might have this same arrangement of the Brahma Viharas, but for them, compassion may be primary. And I think the Mahayana schools tended to adopt this because compassion really ties into the Four Noble Truths. Four Noble Truths are all about suffering. Buddha's teaching is all about suffering in the end. So compassion ties nicely into that. Don't think of them as so different. Don't get into a war with a Tibetan student saying, no, metta's the foundation. And they say, no, compassion's the foundation. Need more equanimity. <laughs> They're very, very similar. And the Dalai Lama expressed this well. He said, compassion is basic human warmth. That's what loving kindness is also, basic human warmth. Sometimes Vipassana students have a little bit of a philosophical problem with metta. It seems a little bit um, phony, like we're trying to contrive something or forcing ourselves to feel something that's not there. And, you know, philosophically, Vipassana is very elegant. Just be with what is. You know, it's kind of like take refuge in reality. You don't need to change it. Isn't that beautiful? It's very elegant. And metta seems a little bit like we're trying to get in there and interfere with reality. We're trying to put something in or push something out with this quality of loving kindness. Vipassana is really our foundation. Taking refuge in reality, aligning our understanding and our mindfulness with exactly what is, is the foundation of practice. And loving kindness can really help us open to that in a very easeful and relaxed way. So we say that we do loving kindness in support of our Vipassana practice. And we think they go together well because it's bringing in right effort, it's bringing in a wholesome state. And when loving kindness grows up, the mindfulness quality that we meet 
our experience with becomes very warm. So that's where we're aiming is to bring the warmth of metta with the clarity of mindfulness so we have this warm loving attention that we bring to everything we meet. And when you can bring a warm loving attention to every part of your experience, conflict kind of goes out of life. So we're expanding the field where we can bring this warm, caring attention. And then sometimes philosophically people complain, oh, but metta is deluded. May I be happy, but there is no I, they'll say. Or may you be happy, but I know happiness is impermanent. What do you, know, what do you mean? So we have a solution for that. Here's a phrase for, for you all who have this doubt. I'm going to use it as an example. In this ever-changing stream of mental and physical phenomena, conventionally designated as Sally, (laughs) may the mind state of happiness arise ever more frequently. (laughs) So if you'd like, you can use that phrase in metta practice. (laughs) Or you could just say, may Sally be happy. That might be simpler. But actually the way I understand may Sally be happy is the long phrase that I just said. So from a Vipassana point of view, we understand not self, we understand impermanence, and still we want Sally to be happy as much as possible. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So does she. Because when you meet somebody who has really developed this kind of loving heart, it's kind of amazing, isn't it? And I I think about the Dalai Lama a lot in this regard because he has such a good heart in the face of all the difficulties that he, he carries in life. He has more or less sole responsibility for the welfare of the six million remaining Tibetans. There used to be seven, but... A lot died since the occupation. So the fate of his people rests on his shoulders. And it's a huge weight to carry. And yet he still has this joyful temperament that that you see when you meet him. And you've probably heard that he'll say something like, you know, my true religion is not Buddhism. My true religion is kindness. And you feel that around him. That's what he cares about is making this kind human connection. So he was being interviewed by Oprah one time uh, for the magazine O. And I really appreciate what Oprah has done to bring spirituality into the mainstream. I don't know of anyone else, including Jack Kornfield and Sylvia Borstein, who have brought good dharma to so many people. Oprah has a great reach through her TV shows and through her magazine. So she was interviewing the Dalai Lama and started the interview by a- she started by asking him have you ever had to forgive yourself for anything and he said small incidents like accidentally killing an insect killing an insect oprah said hmm okay the dalai lama continued my attitude toward mosquitoes is not very favorable <laughs> not very peaceful Bed bugs also. And that's it? 
Oprah couldn't quite believe what she was hearing. In your lifetime, that's what you have to forgive yourself for? Small mistakes every day, maybe, the Dalai Lama said evenly, but major mistakes, it seems, no. No major mistakes, Oprah repeated, mulling over the idea. She fell silent and looked out the window. There was awe in her voice when she finally continued. You have nothing in life that you have regrets about. That's a great life to have no regrets. Regarding service to Tibet, the Dalai Lama said, service to Buddhism, service to humanity, I have done as much as I can. Regarding my own spiritual practice, when I share my experiences with more advanced meditators, even those who have spent years in the mountains practicing single-pointedness of mind, I don't lag too far behind. That's a beautiful mind. And what people like the Dalai Lama are doing is reminding us of our true nature and our true capacity. Love is not something that gets generated by Buddhist practice. It's not something that's only found when we start metta meditation. It's in all of us. One of the most loving people I ever knew was my grandmother, who was born in 1890 and had no Buddhist training at all. And yet when we were kids and came to her house for a visit, she gave us the most warm and loving embraces. So mostly it's a matter of uh, inclining our mind in that direction and letting this innate quality come out. We're encouraging it, we're inviting it, but it's already there uh, in all of us. So this is the aspect of responsiveness. We train the heart to be responsive in this direction of, of caring. So another big way that the loving-kindness meditation works is in the area of purification of heart. And this starts with this simple intention. We connect with someone and we wish them well. That's a very pure intention. So we're developing over and over and over again this intention that is wholesome and caring. And uh, we talked about I think Aaron talked about the other day, intention is the seed for karma. This is the most, I would say, transformative mental factor in all our practice, intention. The Tibetans say everything rests on the tip of motivation. So we take care to set our motivation in a wholesome direction. And the intention of metta is a very wholesome direction. We're training ourselves to care. That's an intention that comes up again and again. So it's kind of like by turning to caring over and over, we're planting little seeds. These are karmic seeds from intention and we continue to water them and then eventually they sprout. They grow big and sprout. Those of you who are gardeners know if you plant seeds, you can't tell the seed when to come up. You you plant a tomato seed in early summer and you water it and you put it in a sunny place. Maybe you put some plastic over it to heat, heat it up a bit. You can't tell the tomato, now it's time for you to come out of the ground and if I don't see you popping up, I'm gonna reach down in the dirt and pull you up. That's how I'll get my tomato plant. But you just trust that the seed is right The elements you add are right and nature will take care of the rest 
And that's the way it is when we plant the seeds of intention. We can't say when it's going to flower as a strong feeling of love or connection or caring, but we know that if we keep planting the seed and giving it the right conditions, it will. Because this is a natural law. Metta will flower based on that intention. The Buddha put it like this, don't disregard the accumulation of wholesomeness saying this will come to nothing. By the gradual falling of raindrops, a jar is filled. This is metta. We're just dripping it moment after moment and we let that jar fill up. We begin with loving kindness for ourself because classically it's said to be the easiest, but as you may have found, it's not always the easiest. Sometimes metta for ourselves is the most difficult because it brings up feelings that uh, we're not so comfortable with. Some of the things that can happen are bringing up old memories of past events in our life. Every time we bring a new person in to loving kindness, we might review what's happened in that relationship. And there can be beautiful moments of friendship and caring, and there can be painful moments where we've been hurt or we may have hurt someone else. So those memories can come up. We may get in touch with feelings of not liking ourselves very much, of self-hatred, of judgment, of doubt um, about ourselves. This doesn't mean we're doing the metta wrong. Rather, it indicates the purification is happening because the metta is a strong force. We're aiming this strong, beautiful force right at the heart. And as we do that, it's going to draw out everything that's its opposite. That's how we get purified. If those feelings are in us, but we can't feel them, we can't ever understand them and release them. As they come out, then we have the chance to hold them in this whole framework of loving kindness. And then they get worked on and then they get hopefully released. That karmic knot unwinds and gets uh, released in time. So when you find you're doing loving kindness practice and some of these other qualities are coming through, we'll just call them hindrances for right now. Don't worry that it's going off track. This is part of the natural process. So how do we work with them? And that depends. It depends a little bit on the strength of the hindrance. If you can leave the hindrance in the background, recognize that it's there, but still connect with the intention to care, do that. Just keep the metaphrase going, connect with as much sincerity of loving kindness as you can, leave the hindrance back there, and the metta will start to work on it. It will be in the metta field, and it will start to take part in the metta. So we often talk about how when a hindrance is present, we move through uh, recognition into allowing those are parts of the steps of rain. So it's important to understand metta has a range of expressions and allowing is part of it. Let's say, let's say the first inkling of metta is the quality of patience. Maybe before we started metta and something came up, it could be a hindrance, it could be something outside us, our first reaction is irritation. 
We move to annoyance or judgment, resistance, condemning, etc. When metta is present, that same stimulus can be met with a quality that we call patience. The Pali is kanti. And patience here doesn't mean, uh, I'm just going to wait. You know, if I wait a couple hours, that'll go away. That's not what patience is about. Patience is bearing what's not pleasant and keeping our mind in a wholesome place, an okay place, let's put it that way. So the first sign that metta is happening is we become more patient. Things that ordinarily irritate us, we go, okay, it's not pleasant, but now I can bear it. The second step in the growth of metta is that we have a real allowing of it. More than I can bear it, it really becomes okay. So it moves, it, as it warms up, it moves from patience into allowance and acceptance. Then it moves from there into affection. And then it moves from there into uh, love. And then it moves from love into, you might say, passion and devotion in, in a really selfless way. So metta has this whole range of flavors and intensity. And it starts with patience. So the affliction comes, the hindrance comes, there can be patience with it. So all the standard hindrances can come and then there are kind of special hindrances that come with metta called the near and far enemies. So you'll find each of the Brahma Viharas and somebody in the afternoon probably mentioned this. Each of the Brahma Viharas has a near enemy and a far enemy. The near enemy is a state that looks like the Brahma Vihara, but it's not wholesome. It's an imposter that is masquerading as the real thing. So with the uh, Brahma Vihara of loving kindness, the imposter is affection with attachment. So you like somebody, but it's very conditional. It's only if they act a certain way. You know, sometimes it's conditional affection or friendship I'll befriend you if you'll befriend me. And if you go back on your part of the bargain, I'm going to take away my part of the bargain. So it's a looking for a a deal. And there's another way that this comes out. Uh, Let me give an example. I was teaching a Metta weekend one time. I didn't think people would get much in a Metta weekend, but actually they did. And it was amazing to see the opening. And so we use the phrases that we're using now, including, may you live with ease. And I took questions and a woman said, um, well, I was using my son as my benefactor because I really love him a lot. And uh, I came to the phrase, may you live with ease. And you see, he's in college and he's living with way too much ease. (laughs) He sleeps late in the morning. I do all his laundry for him. I go in and clean up his room. And, you know, he's not even doing that well in his studies. And so what I wanted to say is, may you acquire some backbone and do your work better. (laughs) This is not entirely metta. (laughs) This has a little bit of fixing in it. And so when we say metta for someone, we want to really accept them as they are, not conditionally based on their changing or living up to our ideas. We're not trying to use it to fix people. And in fact, we're not even waiting for an outcome. We say to someone, I hope you may be happy, but our, our hope, our, our care for them is not dependent on that outcome, on that result. Maybe they're not happy. We can still wish that 
for them. So we don't attach to the result of our wishes and it's equanimity that gives that support to not attach to the result. So um, how to work with the hindrance. The first is if it's weak enough, leave it in the background, continue with the intention of loving kindness and it will be affected by the field of metta that you're in. If it gets stronger, it can feel like it really blocks or prevents the shift of caring. When you're really burdened with a strong hindrance, you know, could be desire, could be fear, could be worry, you're not going to be able to move into caring for someone. So when it's like that, it's more helpful to shift away from metta. And you have two options. The first that I would recommend is you go to compassion. Because in compassion, you're staying within the Brahma-vihara family. So you're not moving very far away. And you have a phrase either, may I be free from this pain and sorrow, or may I hold this pain with compassion. Either of those is a good phrase for compassion. So you, you recognize the hindrance that's there, and you say something like, may I hold it with compassion. Continue with that until it subsides and return to metta. Or, and this may be if the compassion doesn't feel right or it doesn't seem to engage properly, then move to vipassana. Open to the hindrance with mindfulness. Let yourself feel it. Do the exercise of rain. Feel it in your body. Allow it to be there. And sometimes that will just give it enough space that it can kind of, if it's fairly new, not too rooted, can kind of wash through. And then you can go back to the loving kindness. This quality of um, meeting our own self-hatred or self-doubt is really common in doing metta practice. It's a deep conditioning often in us that goes way back to childhood and it's something that can take years to become free of. But the combination of apasa and metta really can let us become free and transformed from that. So I want to read this poem. It's a well-known poem, but I hadn't heard it for a while. And maybe you haven't heard it for a while. So I'm going to read it. It's called St. Francis and the Sow by Galway Cannell. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, To put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely. Until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering all down her thick length, from the earth and snout all the way through the fodder and slops, to the spiritual curl of the tail. From the hard spininess spiked out from the spine, down through the giant broken heart, to the sheer blue milk and dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths, sucking and blowing beneath them, the long, perfect loveliness of sow.
So sometimes it's necessary to reteach ourselves our loveliness. And that's what the practice of loving kindness is doing. It's showing us that possibility. Now, of course, one of the challenges in purification comes when we pick up the difficult person. And this is going to be your treat tomorrow in loving kindness. It's probably the most challenging part of the practice, but then there's also good learning. So I was doing an intensive metta retreat one time. I was practicing it for six weeks in a container a lot like this. And I was, um, you know, quite settled. When it seemed to happen that I started running into one other person on the retreat a lot, and that person was my difficult person. It's someone that I'd known before the retreat, and they were also on the retreat, and it just seemed at this point we crossed paths a lot. So my practice would be going really well, and I'd had a lot of love and energy and brightness, and then I'd meet this person passing in the hall, and I'd go, I can't believe what they did what they said and how they treated me and that other, I can't believe they did that. And I'd start winding myself up thinking about all the things that had happened and I'd get really growly about it. And I'd go back to my cushion and I'd go, you know, may my friend be safe, but I can't believe what that person did. And I I would spin out for like half an hour and I'd be really worked up about it. And then I'd sort of remember, oh, you know, they talk about loving kindness for the difficult person. Maybe I should try it. I said, no, 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 I don't want to love the difficult person. (laughs) That's not part of the program that I came for. But the anger was so annoying and unpleasant, I thought I'd better try it. So I did. And surprise of surprises, it worked. And something really interesting came out of that. When I could generate a real wish for their welfare, the anger went away. And that's all it took. I didn't have to like them. I didn't have to love them. I didn't have to approve of what they'd done. I didn't have to condone their conduct or think they were a great person. All I had to do was wish them well. And if I could sincerely wish them well, the anger went away. So why that was, as I looked into it, a piece of anger, for me anyway, is usually something called ill will. And in ill will, it's the opposite of goodwill. We actually want the other person to suffer. So I started to see that within my anger was a wish that my difficult person suffer. And that is really close to cruelty. Cruelty is enjoying somebody else's suffering. But ill will is wanting somebody else to suffer. They're not that far apart. And although I could think, oh, it's okay for me to be angry, I couldn't think it was okay for me to be cruel. That didn't feel acceptable. And then I saw how close I was getting, and I didn't want to be in ill will toward them. And I realized that I now have a way to come out of ill will, and that is to replace it with goodwill. That was a real opening for me. And I recommend it as a really skillful means with anger. If you can just wish well for the person, the anger uh, can really lift. I want to read something from uh, one of the discourses of the Buddha. This is a text called The Simile of the Saw. Uh, I'm not going to read that part. 
But the Buddha talks about how to deal with difficult people. And difficult people have by and large said something unkind to us. And the Buddha said this might happen in kind of five ways. They might say it at the wrong time. You know, you ever been with somebody you really like and hope they respect you and a friend comes up and gives you some feedback or says something disrespectful? It feels awful to be kind of hurt at the wrong time. Or somebody says something about you that's just not true, but other people hear it and believe it. That's hurtful. Or they come and they speak to you harshly. It's really clear they're angry and they kind of blast you with that harsh energy. That hurts. Or you know that their speaking is coming out of ill will, a wish to cause you harm, and that doesn't feel good. Or you know that um, their mind, the mind they're speaking from is one of anger or hatred, and that doesn't feel good. So the Buddha said, if any of these five things happen, somebody speaks to you at the wrong time, they speak something that's not true, they speak harshly to you, they speak in a way that harms you, and they speak from hatred, you should still maintain loving kindness for them. This is what he actually says. Herein, bhikkhus, and bhikkhu means practitioners, means us, you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected and we shall utter no evil words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate. This is how you should train, bhikkhus. This is a challenging directive. You reflect on it with people who have hurt you with their speech. This is not easy to do, to maintain loving kindness toward them. But this is what the Buddha says to us we should practice in doing. So this is a good reminder with a difficult person. See if it's possible to open with, with some care. And then I want to mention um, Aung San Suu Kyi, who was put under house arrest uh, for close to 17 years by the military dictatorship in Burma. And as you know, she, she's now free and um, an elected member of parliament. You know, it's pretty amazing. While she was on house retreat, the one thing they did, not house retreat, sorry, house arrest, <laughs> I say it because she lived it partly as a meditation retreat. She had visits from very uh, well-known and respected Burmese Sayadaws. We know some of the Sayadaws who visited her and some of the instructions they were giving her while she was on house retreat. And one of the things they taught her, house arrest, (laughs) sorry. One of the things they taught her was loving kindness. But when she came out, you know, notice how she was able to be balanced in relationship to the military dictators in order to work with them politically. But she had been doing practice of metta for a long time under house arrest. And this is what she said when she came out. When I compared notes with my colleagues in the democracy movement who have suffered long terms of imprisonment, we found that an enhanced appreciation of metta was a common experience. We had known and felt both the effects of loving kindness and the unwholesomeness of nature's lacking in loving kindness. She had really been able to see that contrast, and her determination 
was to approach things with love. You know, Nelson Mandela said something really similar to this. When the white government of South Africa was considering releasing him from prison, their main worry was that when he came out, he would encourage the black population to rise up against the whites in retribution for their years of oppression and cruelty, false imprisonment, and so forth. And so they had a a little meeting with Mandela to see what he was thinking about that and if they were going to be taking a really huge risk in releasing him. And they basically asked him that question. Are you going to incite the people to turn against the whites? And Mandela said, no, I am not going to do that. And my government is not going to do that. Why? Because we have seen in you what brutality and fear look like. And we don't want to live like that. We are not going to do that. And I think this is Aung San Suu Kyi's intention also. She's not going to repeat the mistakes of the dictators. So this is the realm of purification of heart. The third of the powers of loving kindness is the power of concentration. Concentration is about the unification of mind, and we usually approach it through choosing an object that the mind centers around. In Vipassana practice, that object is often the breath. In loving-kindness practice, the main object is the phrases. So you keep coming back to the phrases of loving-kindness, and the mind collects around that. As the mind collects, stray thoughts, wishes, desires, fears don't come in as much. So that's a very wholesome thing. Bonnie talked about it last night as one of the seven factors of enlightenment, this uh, force of concentration. As you get more sophisticated in your practice of metta, you'll start to notice it's not just the phrases the mind is collecting around, but there are other objects too. There's the image of the person you're sending to if you use the image, or the felt sense of them if you're not using an image. There is the feeling of metta itself. As it grows, you tune into that and you let yourself be aware of it. And there is something I often recommend, coming back into the heart center, feeling the body's response to the metta. So you might say there are really four objects that you can be aware of as you're doing loving-kindness practice, and each of these is a focus for concentration. Concentration builds with each of these. And in fact, the more balls you have up in the air at one time, the better your concentration has to be. And it's a little bit like a juggler. Keep all those balls going, and in the right sequence, you really have to be present. So the four balls stretch you, but as they stretch you, they build this power of concentration. So metta is a beautiful concentration practice. We use it on long retreats to teach concentration to the depth of, of jhana. It's one of the things that we do on, on long retreats. So concentration unifies the mind. As you probably know, love unifies the mind. Love is a really powerful unifying force. It brings uh, families together. It brings friends together. It brings countries together. Um, It's actually a beautiful quote from Martin Luther King 
where he says, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. So we hope that it will bring the nation together eventually. So love is unifying, concentration is unifying. In the metta practice, we're using both love and concentration to build that force of unity. So this is a double power of unification. And I want to read this um, passage. This is from a Russian Orthodox saint from the 19th century whose name was Theophan the Recluse. Now, I very much doubt that he had Buddhist training. But here you'll hear it coming from a Christian perspective, something that's I think will be familiar. For as long as the mind remains in the head, where thoughts jostle one another, it has no time to concentrate on one thing. But when attention descends into the heart, it attracts all the powers of the soul and body into one point there. This concentration is immediately reflected in the heart by a special sensation that is the beginning of warmth. The sensation grows gradually stronger, firmer, deeper. And so it comes about that whereas in the initial stages the attention is kept in the heart by an effort of will, you notice that with metta, it takes an effort of will to stay in the heart. In due course, this attention by its own strength gives birth to warmth in the heart. This warmth holds the attention without special effort. From this, the two go on supporting one another and must remain inseparable because dispersion of intention cools the warmth and diminishing warmth weakens attention. It's exactly describing the way metta and concentration support each other in this bringing about of warmth in the heart. And another Deepama story. She was teaching a three-month course at IMS on the East Coast. And of course, people were struck by her character and her being and her presence. And so some, one time, somebody had the idea to ask her what I think is a great question. They said, what's in your mind? Yeah, I'm really glad somebody asked that. And she said, I have only three things in my mind. Concentration, peace, and loving kindness. That's all that's there. That's a beautiful mind. The fourth uh, aspect, the fourth fruit of loving kindness is this um, quality of connection. It really opens us out into a connection with other beings, beginning with a circle of friends and close people we already have, extending outward to people we don't know, extending outwards to people we have difficulty with, eventually extending to all beings everywhere, human beings, animals, we care for our suffering. We care for their suffering. Uh, this, is where, this is where the practice is opening up to. And there's a joy in that. There's a joy in this connection. This is from Shantideva, who was a great sage in India and um, author of Guide to a Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Whatever joy there is in this world, all comes from wanting others to be happy. And whatever suffering there is in this world all comes from wanting only myself to be happy. <laughs> so this is the beauty of the path of metta. As we connect with others, that connection is really satisfying. 
It satisfies something deep within us because it offsets our sense of isolation. I read somewhere, so many of these things go by and I didn't note it, I can't give you the reference, that neuroscience researchers have found that one of the deepest sources of suffering for humans is feeling isolated, disconnected, lonely, not part of a community and not belonging. Metta overcomes that sense of isolation. It puts us in touch with all sentient beings. Why? Because we find out all beings have the same basic wish we do. Every being that takes life experiences pleasure and experiences pain. Every being that takes life only wants to experience pleasure and doesn't want to experience pain. This is our common predicament. So we're all alike in this. Any being you bring to mind, you'll find that common thread of humanity or even uh, cross-speciesism. Animals are the same. All want to be happy and don't want to suffer. So when we start to see it like this, we find that that unifying force of connection is bigger than the distinctions we've made. What thought does is it makes lots of distinctions. It makes distinctions among us of age and race and ethnicity and class and education and sexual orientation and gender identification and ability or different ability and so on. These distinctions are real. We are not trying to deny them. We acknowledge them. We can celebrate them as our diversity. But we don't have to obsess about them to the exclusion of seeing what we have in common. And what we have in common, I say, is more fundamental and unites us rather than provide a possible ground for separation. And what unites us is this fundamental humanity. We, we all have access to the Brahma Viharas. We all have access to the difficult emotions. They're part of our human package. And so the way I feel it is we all have the same heart. It responds in the same way to pleasure. It responds in the same way to pain. And it's kind of like that one human heart has just been poured into all our different packages. And then it's been subject to really different life experiences. And it's been shaped by those life experiences. So our hearts have been conditioned by the different circumstances we've been in. But underneath, that same heart is there in all of us. We're the same organism, basically. We've just been conditioned and shaped differently. So there's um, Rumi, and then you may know his teacher was a guy from the area of Tabriz, whose name was Shams. He's known as Shams of Tabriz. Not much is known about Shams, but he left at least one poem, and here's a poem from Shams of Tabriz. I, you, he, she, we... In the garden of mystic lovers, these are not true distinctions. These are not true distinctions. In the garden of loving kindness, 
these are not true distinctions. There's one heart. It's just beating in different chests. Same heart. So this is the force of uh, connectedness that undoes our isolation, undoes our loneliness, and opens us up to a really deep inclusivity with life. And the last beautiful quality of loving kindness is this force of happiness. When this caring is there, when this sense of connection is there, when the mind has become unified through love and concentration, there is a sublime quality to our experience. That's why the Brahma Vihara is called a divine abiding. And sort of like the Buddha was saying, if you're going to hang out in a state, this is like the highest state to hang out in. Okay, you can hang out in Nibbana, and that has no flavor, essentially. And that's really free. But if you're going to be in the world, and you're relating, these are the states, heavenly states, that you can learn to relate from. So, um, metta opens this up really directly. And one of the places that you might feel that uh, the strongest is when you're uh, really connecting with a dear friend or a benefactor. You know, when the quality of real care and deep affection is there in that moment and it comes to life, see what that feels like. It's kind of like there's such a richness and enjoyment to that. It's satisfying on so many levels that there's just the sense that we can drop into and rest in the contentment of that place. We can abide in that quality of loving kindness. And it's kind of like, it's a place we can feel we're home in. So one of the reasons metta is such a good counterpart to Vipassana is Vipassana kind of takes us apart. I don't know if you felt this in this retreat. Vipassana kind of breaks us down into the six senses or the five aggregates, which John will talk about soon. You know, our experience, when we look at it closely, is just these momentary arisings of in-breath, sound, emotion, thought, sensation, out-breath, sight, There's nothing else there. So this can make us feel like we're in pieces. So Vipassana reveals this great space where these little bits of action are happening. Metta fills that space with warmth and puts us back together. We hold all those bits in the embrace of loving kindness, of acceptance, of warmth, of love. And when we're held there, we feel that, uh, that goodness. We feel that goodness within us, and that becomes the source for loving ourselves, really caring about ourselves deeply. And that's something that, as practice evolves, we want to share with others. This is another quote from uh, Shantideva. For as long as space endures and as long as sentient beings remain, may I too abide to dispel the misery of this world. We find this source of reliable happiness and sublime abiding 
and we want to share that with others. And that is deeply satisfying. So this is the uh, sort of the close of this interview between Oprah and the Dalai Lama. And I just want to mention that compassion and metta can be used interchangeably in discussions like this. They're not very far apart. So compassion's primary in Tibetan, metta's primary for us. Same basic relationship. So Oprah asked the Dalai Lama, closing the interview, in my magazine I do a column called What I Know for Sure. What do you know for sure? The one thing on which you have no doubt. The Dalai Lama did not hesitate. Compassion is the best source of happiness for happy life and happy world. There is no doubt. Metta is too. So let's just sit for a minute and let the metta fill the space. Compassion is the best source of happiness for happy life and happy world. There is no doubt. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.